Father, here we are. We're longing to hear another word from You. Lord, Your Word is full of promise after promise. And Lord, we want those things to take root in our hearts this morning. To such an extent, Father, that it would cast the fear out of our hearts, that it would cast the unbelief out of our hearts that keeps us from all that You are calling us to. Father, I pray that you do that this morning in my heart and in each of our hearts through the power of your word because of all that Jesus has done for us. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The door to the tent burst open and in came a servant. He said, look, this has to stop. This cannot go on. The old gentleman in the corner of the tent looked at the servant. He said, just, just calm down. Take some deep breaths. What happened this time? He said, they're at it again. We just, there's not enough land. We can't continue like this. We keep fighting over the, the pastures. And look, why did Lot come with us anyways? Why did you bring Lot with us? He's your nephew. He shouldn't have right to the, the best of the pasture lands. And they have too many sheep. They're always encroaching on our land. And I imagine that as as Abraham is sitting there in the corner of his tent, he's listening to his servant. At first, what feelings might have rose up inside of his heart? Feelings of anger, feelings of frustration, ready to take it out on Lot. And then I imagine that through the tent flap, he looks out and there by the tree, he notices something. And as he sees that altar there, he knows that he's called to something different. Last week, we looked at this call that happens in Revelation chapter 14 that that leads us to the second angel's message that tells us that Babylon is fallen, is fallen. But the first angel's message that's leading us to this call out of Babylon, let's look at it again. Verse 6 says this, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, another messenger, having the everlasting gospel. Last week we looked at how the gospel was preached to Abraham. A sevenfold gospel. It was preached to Abraham. It's this everlasting gospel. It's good news that, that never changes, that keeps on coming to us. We have this everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth. And it's to every nation, to every tribe, to every tongue, and to every people. This is a message that is good news for your neighbors, and for those that you might not even consider your neighbors. But notice what this good news looks like. As it starts off, and I read it, I think, is this really good news? Because the angel says with a loud voice, fear God. Yeah, the first time I read that, I kind of felt the same way. You read that and you think, how is this good news for me? I don't understand how it's good news for you to be calling me to fear God. But the Bible says that this is the everlasting gospel. Fear God is how this everlasting gospel starts off. And we saw the promises last week that were given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. I invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. And just as we dive into Genesis chapter 12 together, I want to review those 12 promises with you. 
In fact, let's just repeat them together so that, that we remember them, so that we re, we're reminded. Now, as we repeat them, remember that, that these aren't just promises to Abraham, but in Galatians chapter 3, Paul ends the chapter by saying, you are heirs of the promise, talking about this very promise. You ready? So you want to read this with me? The first promise, I will show you a land. Let's try it again. I will show you a land. Promise two, read that. I will make you a great nation. Promise number three, I will bless you. Promise number four, I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Promise number five, I will bless those who bless you. Six, I will curse those who curse you. Number seven, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That encapsulating promise of that through Abraham would come Jesus who would fulfill all of the covenant and be our Savior so that we once again could have a planet that is restored to Edenic, Edenic beauty. So let's jump into the story again in Genesis chapter 12 and we'll pick it up in verse 4. Right after this promise is given to Abraham in verses 1 to 3, verse 4 says this, so Abraham, he's been given this both a call out and a promise of what God will do. He's given this this call out and this promise and then in verse 4 it says this, so Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him and Lot went with him and Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. An age for retirement, an age for settling down, an age for, for hanging on to your family, for hanging on to everything that's around you. But instead, he's stepping out to lean in to God and what God will provide for him. Verse 5 continues, says, Then Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people whom they had acquired in Haran. This is fascinating. When it says the people, it's not the Hebrew word for servants. It's not, this is talking about people who are willingly joining themselves to Abraham. This means that, that Abraham has had some sort of influence on people already. He's already been telling people about this God that he's going to serve. And there are other people who want to step out on this crazy journey of not knowing where he's going. And they're saying, we're going to go with you, Abraham. And so this entire company, these people that are influenced by Abraham, they're all going together and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Verse 6, continue. Abraham passed through the land to the place of Shechem. Can you imagine as he's going through? Yes, I think this is the place. God has called us here. This is the land that God is giving to us. As far as the terebinth tree of Morah. And then all of a sudden it says this, and it's a, it's a one sentence that we could just pass by, but it's poignant because it says this. And the Canaanites were then in the land. Wait a second, God, you called me out of an idolatrous association with my family, with the supports that I had back in Babylon, and you called me out, and here I am in this new land, and there are Canaanites in the land. They are worshiping idols. They're offering their children as sacrifices. Here I am, and this isn't even my land. This is the Canaanites' land. God, what are you doing? Sometimes we think that when we start following God that everything should suddenly fall into place and everything makes sense immediately. 
But God isn't looking for you to understand every step of the road ahead of you. What God is looking is for you to understand the one who's leading you on the road that's ahead of you. He wants you to know Him as the faithful provider. And He's willing to do whatever it takes to lead you to that realization. Hebrews chapter 11, talking about this hero of faith, says this, Verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. He had no idea. He didn't understand where he was going. He just knew who he was going with. Friends, in today's crazy world, that is enough to know who you're going with. Verse 9 continues. We skipped this last week. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country. Abraham understood what it was to be a refugee. Abraham knew what it was to be a foreigner in a country where you were not welcome necessarily. He dwelt there as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. They're living in tents. They don't have a city. They don't have something firm to rely upon. But they do have God to rely upon. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He's looking up. He's not looking at the circumstances. He's willing to leave everything behind and to just lean in to God. So we continue in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham. Do you remember that that God promised, I will show you a land. That's the the word ra'ah. I will will help you to see this land. And then in verse 7, all of a sudden it says that God appeared, same word, to Abram. God shows himself to Abram. He brings him to this land. He sees that there are Canaanites there. He's challenged because this isn't what he's looking for. And God says, well, here I am, Abraham. (laughs) I'm what you need. And it emphasizes this because he shows up and he says, "To, to your descendants, I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him, to the Lord who showed himself to him. What we need more than anything else is a revelation of the covenant-keeping God, the God who is faithful to his promises, who will never let you down, no matter what circumstances you're facing. Verse 8 continues, and he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. There are two fascinating things. Just in these verses, we read this, and it's just talking about Abraham wandering around in the land of Canaan and pitching a tent. There's two things that come up in this. One, what does he do every place that he goes? He builds an altar. He's building a place to worship, and he's calling everybody around him to come together, to come around the altar, to worship Yahweh. And and though they move on, the altar is still there. So the, the Canaanites who are in the land, they all look back and they see the altar. They see these memorials and they remember, that's Abraham's God. This is the place where Yahweh is worshipped. But there's a second thing that, that might not be as apparent as you look at this. Notice where he's not going. He's going in between Bethel and Ai. He's going near Morah. He's going near Shechem. He's going near cities. But he's not going in the cities and living in them. 
Do you remember that Nimrod is the one who started a city, Babylon, this place that God recognized was a seat of rebellion? And you see even earlier on that you have Cain's lineage is the one that, that starts building cities and coming together. And Abraham is staying out of these cities, these places that are becoming hotbeds of idolatry. And instead, he's building altars on the outskirts, in between cities, in places where he can go to worship the true God. Verse 9 continues, So Abraham journeyed, going on still toward the south. Now as you get to this point, you think, hey, this sounds pretty good. He may not have a city. He may not have uh, everything that he wants. But at least he's now in the right land. He's worshiping God. He has altars. He's finally in the promised land. And then verse 10 continues and says this. Now there was a famine in the land. Great. Not only are the Canaanites living here, it's a more difficult place to live. Not only is he living in tents and not a city, but now there is a famine in the land. What does Abraham do? How does he handle this trial that comes to him? Now he's hungry. On top of it all, he's hungry. And when a man gets hungry, it's a dangerous thing. And Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. It's a very severe famine, and so he decides to do something. He decides to go down to Egypt to escape this famine. Now, on the one hand, we could say, hey, this is a good thing. He's not going back to Ur. He's not going back to Babylon. He knows that that is where he's called out of. So, Props to Abraham because he's not going back to his home. But is this really what God is calling him to do? The famine comes, the trial comes, and he turns to Egypt. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 129, says this, The Lord in his providence had brought this trial upon Abraham to teach him lessons of submission, patience, and faith. Lessons that were to be placed on record for the benefit of all who should afterward be called to endure affliction. Have you been through some trials in your life? You're facing some things that are difficult to handle? Abraham's example gives us helpful illustrations and examples to know how we can have submission to God, patience with God, and faith in God in the midst of trial. Verse 10 tells us that the famine was very severe, and it tells us that he went to, Ab- to, to Egypt. Now, we have to skip forward a couple chapters to kind of get an idea of why he might have gone to Egypt. In Genesis chapter 13, verse 10, it tells us that Lot lifts up his eyes, and he sees all the plain of the Jordan, the Jordan River Valley, <clears throat> and it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like what? What does it say? Like the garden of the Lord. It was like Eden. It was one of the most beautiful places of paradise on the planet. And then it also goes on to say this. Like the land of what? Egypt. As you go towards Zoar. Now, if you're thinking about today's uh, geography and you're thinking about Egypt, you probably think of Egypt, you think of camels, you think of deserts, you think of pyramids. You don't exactly think of the Garden of Eden when you think of Egypt. But I want to give you a little picture of what Egypt looks like in comparison to the land around it. 
right? So on the right-hand side there, you see that coming down in a V-shape. That's the Sinai Peninsula. On the left side, you see that green swath coming up through the desert. That's the Nile River that runs from south to north, uh, an oddity for a river. It's running to the north, and you notice that the entire way is green. And then it gets to the Nile Delta, and it's just this swath of green. This is a, a photograph taken by NASA. You see that, that this is a very attractive place in a, a desert land. It's, it's a place that's well watered, that's consistently watered. There's constantly a river flowing into it. Moses warned the children of Israel, actually, when they went into to Israel, that, that Israel is a land that's watered by rain sent from heaven. So if that stops, you're in trouble. But Egypt has a constant source of water coming in through the Nile River. It's kind of like Babylon, which has the Euphrates River running through it, and also constantly had green vegetation. And so he goes to a place that's kind of similar. He's looking to, to a place where he could provide for his family. He's figuring out how he can provide for the needs of his family in the midst of a famine. Now notice as we go through this, Watch and see where God shows up or where he doesn't show up. Verse 11, And it came to pass, when he was close to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarai his wife, Indeed I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Men, just just take this away. Uh, if you take nothing else away for the sake of your marriage, this is a good thing to tell your wife. <clears throat> Especially if you're in a difficult journey, you're on a hard trip. I mean, say it honestly, but... He says to Sarah, you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Ah, such a beautiful romantic picture. Then verse 12. Therefore it will happen when the Egyptians see you, that they will say, this is his wife. And they will kill me, but they will let you live. Because your beauty is going to be a problem for me. Verse 13, please say that you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. Abraham, you were just given a sevenfold promise from God that I will bless you, I will make you a great nation, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you. What's going on here? Notice what he's saying. He's saying, we're going down to Egypt, and, and when we get there, you're so beautiful that I'm afraid that these powerful Egyptians, I'm fearful of them, and so I'm doubting the promises of God. Fear is a major contributor to our unbelief. Fear leads us, maybe even in our lives, to tell us lies that can separate us from the incredible promises of God. Notice how this lie has parallels. I was looking at this. It's fascinating how it has parallels to what Lucifer told Eve in the garden, what the serpent said to Eve. Notice the serpent said, you will be like God in Genesis 3 verse 5. Well, Abraham says to Sarai, do this for me that it may be well with me so that, that you can watch out so that, so that things can be better for me. You will be like God. Genesis 3 verse 4 says, you will not surely die. The lie here in Genesis 12 verse 13 is that I may live. That it may go well with me. That I may live. That I may prosper. That things will be good. Sarai, please. It's just a little lie. And we learn later on that he could even say maybe it's not a lie. 
Because he tells us later on, when he does the same dumb thing again, that Sarai is actually his sister. Not the same father, but the same mother. And so, looking at this, he could say, well, he is sort of, she is sort of my sister. This is what happens when we look at keeping God's commandments by the letter of the law rather than by the spirit of the law. When we're, we're concerned about guarding ourselves, when, when our religion is taking the form of trying to do things in order to protect ourselves, we can end up twisting even the rules and the laws in our favor. You see this happening with the Pharisees. You see that, that they, they twisted the laws in order to, to be good for themselves. They're worried about self-preservation. <clears throat> Abraham did this because he was afraid. He lied because he was afraid. And I've realized that in my life, a lot of times, that's why I've told the lies that I've told. I remember from back in the days in high school when I decided to, to cheat on tests or to do things that were dishonest. Usually it was to save my own skin. It was to make sure that I was going to be okay. That's the reason that, that, that you might be tempted to, to steal something, to cheat, to whatever you might be tempted to do. Oftentimes, it's doubting the promises of the provision and care of God and fearing what's going to happen to you based on what you're able to do. Jesus says basically this in Luke chapter 12, verse 4. If only Abraham had been able to think about the promises of God. Jesus says this, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that they have no more that they can do. So, so don't be afraid of those who, who are only able to kill the body. If, if that's all that they're able to do, you don't have to worry about that. Do not be afraid. Then he goes on to say this in verse 5. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him whom, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Now, who would that be? Satan? Is Satan the one that has the power to cast us into hell? I've read it that way too before. But I don't believe that Satan has any authority over sending me to hell. I believe that the lake of fire is prepared for Satan and his angels. But that's where Satan's going to end up and that God doesn't want me there. But that if I choose, he will allow me to go there. He's the one that has the authority and power to cast me into hell. And Jesus says, I say to you, fear him. Now that's a little scary. So, so I need to be afraid of God. Do I need to, do I need to think of God like Jonathan Edwards talked about in his, his sermon where he talked about that God is an angry God who's like holding us like a spider over a fire, just waiting the sermon is about sinners in the hands of an angry God, just waiting to drop us into that fire. Is that the type of God that Jesus is picturing here? He's saying, don't be afraid of people. Instead, be afraid of God, because he's the only one that can really cause eternal damage to you. Is that what it's saying here? Not if you continue reading, because look at verse 6. It goes on to say this beautiful illustration. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? He says, look, you look outside and you go to the market and, and they'll, they'll have a whole cage full of birds and they're sold for, for like two pennies. They're, they have so little value to our society. 
And then he says this, and not one of them is forgotten before God. So God doesn't forget about the, the, the tiny little birds. God cares about their lives. In verse 7, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. God cares about how many hairs you have on your head. How many of you this morning woke up and counted how many hairs you have on your head? <laughs> Ralph did, and we won't ask him why he was able to do that. <laughs> Anybody else? <laughs> this illustration is basically to say, look, God cares about you more than you care about yourself. If you don't keep track of whether you're losing how many hairs you have on your head, God keeps track of that. God cares more about the details of your life. He's more anxious for things to be provided for you than you can even imagine. He can do, he cares more about the details than you possibly could. And then he goes on to say this. Do not fear, therefore. So he says, okay, don't be afraid of the world and its persecution of you. Be afraid instead if you have to fear somebody. Think about fearing God. And then it goes on to say, but God loves you, so do not fear, for you are of more value to God than many sparrows. (laughs) So when God tells us, when Jesus tells us to fear God, it's not something where we're afraid of God. It's not something where we're shrinking back from what this person is going to do for us. Instead, it's a picture of us running towards this being who cares about our lives, who cares about the hairs on our heads, who loves us more than all of the birds. Isaiah chapter 8 encapsulates this similarly. It says, do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Don't be afraid of the things that, that the world is afraid of. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread and he will become a sanctuary to you. (laughs) He wants to become a sanctuary to you. Now, this might be a little hard to grasp and I've struggled with this, but as I've studied the fear of God, I encourage you to, to study fearing God throughout the Bible. Look up all the verses that you can find and put them together. And as you look at this composite picture of what it really means to fear God, it's actually a beautiful thing of how God wants us to be afraid of being outside of his sheltering arms. A pastor, John Piper, illustrates it like this. <clears throat> He says, the clearest illustration I have ever seen of this kind of good fear was the time one of my sons looked a German shepherd right in the eyes. We were visiting a family from our church. My son Carson was about seven years old. They had a huge dog that stood eye to eye with a seven-year-old. They told him, don't be afraid. He's a friendly German shepherd. He was friendly and Karsten had no problem making friends. But when we sent Karsten back to the car to get something, we had forgotten. He started to run back to the car and the dog galloped up right behind him with a low growl. And of course, this frightened Karsten. But the owner said, Karsten, why don't you just walk? The dog doesn't like it when people run away from him. If Karsten hugged the dog, he was friendly and would even lick his face. But if he ran from the dog, the dog would growl and fill Karsten with fear. That's a picture of what it means to fear God. 
God means for his power and holiness to kindle fear in us, not to drive us from him, but to drive us to him. Fearing God means first fearing to abandon him as our great security and satisfaction. Or another way to say it is that we should fear unbelief. Abraham is afraid of the Egyptians, afraid of what they're going to do to him because of his beautiful wife. But what he should have been afraid of is trying to provide for his own salvation by going to Egypt in the first place. What he should have been afraid of is not trusting the promises of God to bless those who blessed him and curse those who cursed him to be a shield around him. What he should have been afraid of is to leave God's sheltering arm. But because he wasn't afraid of that and he was afraid of the situations and circumstances of his life, he lied. He broke the commandments of God. He chose to step outside of the sheltering arms of God. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 1 says this, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Fear lest you don't enter the blessed rest of the promise of the finished work of salvation that is done for you by Jesus Christ. That is what we are to be afraid of. The Gospel Herald, April 23, 1902, talks about another verse that talks about fearing God. Philippians chapter 2, and it says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. How is this to be done? How do we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling? Fear lest you shall weave into the fabrics of your own, your, the fabric threads of your own selfishness. Fear lest you shall err in choosing the timber for your character building. God alone can supply the solid timber. Be afraid lest you're trying by your own works to become a better person rather than depending upon Jesus. That is what we're to be afraid of. Well may mortal man, it goes on to say, be afraid of weaving into his own character the miserable threads of his own inherited and cultivated tendencies. Well may he tremble lest he shall not submit all things to him who is working in his behalf that God's will may be done in him. What we have to be afraid of is not believing the promises. What we have to be afraid of is unbelief, of not trusting our loving Father in heaven who will do absolutely everything to complete the good work which he has begun in you. Jeremiah 32, verse 40. This is a verse worth noting down, worth highlighting in your Bible. This is a promise from God of the everlasting covenant that he will do with you, and it has to do with the fear of God. It says this, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. Isn't that awesome? This is the everlasting covenant of God to you. I won't stop doing you good. I'll never stop doing you good. Every morning when you wake up, when the famine's coming, when the trials are there, you can trust that I'm still doing good for you in your life. I will not stop doing good to them. And... I will put the fear of me in their hearts. And what is that fear to do? It finishes by saying this, that they may not turn from me. You want that kind of fear in your life? A fear of anything else but being in the sheltering arms of Jesus. A fear of being anywhere else but in the center of his will because you know that that's the happiest place for you in the entire universe. That is the kind of fear that started Abraham's journey but that he got distracted from by the anxieties and cares that he was facing in his life. 
Genesis 12, verse 13, shows us that lie that he says, please, just tell them that you're my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 129, goes on to say this, the very trials that task our faith most severely and make it seem that God has forsaken us are to lead us closer to Christ, that we may lay our burdens at his feet and experience the peace which he will give us in exchange. Let us fear lest we come short of entering the promise of His rest. Let's be afraid of trying to work out our own salvation. Let us be afraid of anything else but being in the center of the will of God. Verse 14 continues, So it was when Abraham came into Egypt, when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman that she was very beautiful, just like he predicted. Verse 15, The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and com- com- commended her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. Now I want you to think for a second about this. This is catastrophic when you think about the promises of God. God has promised Abraham to make him a great nation, that in him would come the Messiah. And now the one through whom he has made that promise has been taken into Egyptian captivity. He's going to become the next wife of Pharaoh. And in the midst of this, God has a responsibility. He has promised Abraham all of these things. Now, when God promised these things to Abraham, what promise did God ask from Abraham? No promises? I mean, did he promise him, I'm not going to lie, I'm not going to steal, I'm not going to cheat, and if I do those things, then... No. He simply made these promises of what he was going to do on Abraham's behalf and through Abraham's descendants. So now you imagine the awkwardness. I mean, maybe we could be transported up to the throne of God. And you have God sitting on his throne and he's watching as, as Abraham is there. And, and Abraham has lied. He's doubting God. He's distrusting God. And because of that, here's his wife in Egyptian captivity in a way. He's, she's going to be the next wife of Pharaoh. And, and here you have a God of justice who's thinking, what do I do in this situation? Abraham has not been faithful to me. But I have made a promise to Abraham and I made a promise through Abraham to the entire world that I'm sending Jesus through Abraham. And now the way that I've promised that, Sarah, she's about to be the wife to Pharaoh. Do you see how sin and unbelief in our lives creates all kinds of problems for God? Do you see how difficult this makes it for God to come through in His promises? This is why we should fear to be outside of the will of God. This is why we should fear God and trust God rather than to fear circumstances in our life. Because in reality, when we're running away from what looks scary to us, we, we run away from that trial. We say, okay, I'm going to cheat on my taxes this way, or I'm going to, to be unfaithful with my tithe, or, or I'm, I'm going to lie about this situation, or, or I'm going to be unkind to this person in order that, that I could be okay. Whatever it might be that we go through and we do, and we decide that this is what I need to do for self-preservation, 
God is there and He's promised these blessings in our lives. And it makes it more difficult for those promises to be fulfilled in our lives. Sin makes God's faithfulness all the more difficult. I don't envy God sitting on His throne as He's looking down at Abraham and He's thinking, okay, how do I make Him both a blessing and bless Him and still treat Pharaoh with justice? It's a tough situation and I don't pretend to understand as I read through this story exactly what all it looks like except for that I know that later on when God does something similar to Pharaoh, it's for the purpose of bringing Pharaoh himself to recognize the greatness of God and to repent and turn to God himself. But I do know this, that even though Abraham was unfaithful, that God remained faithful Paul writes that to Timothy. He says, even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. God will fulfill his covenant promises. The only thing that can limit that in any way is our unbelief and our resistance. He treated Abram well for her sake, verse 16. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. It's pretty fascinating when you read this because at this time, all of these things are pretty usual. He's giving all these gifts to Abram until you get to camels. Now we do have archaeological evidence of camels being in Egypt in this time period. But they're very rare. They're very precious gifts. Pharaoh is lavishing some of the most exquisite gifts on Abraham that are possible. He's giving him camels. He's lavishing these things on him because here he, he has his sister to marry. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Friends, God will fulfill his covenant promises. He will step through. That's the entire picture of the Bible. It's a promise made and a promise kept. The Bible's promises being fulfilled are not based on who the individuals that the promises are being made to are. Abraham was not faithful in this instance. Yes, we see him as a person who turns and worships God, but God steps through in his life despite his unfaithfulness. And this morning you might be sitting here thinking, yeah, it's great to think that God has promises. But what about me? Could he really be faithful to me of all people? The promises of Scripture are that that he will finish the good work which he has begun in you if you will only turn to him this morning. Well, immediately after this, we'll skip these verses, but Pharaoh begins to to call, he gets the plagues coming on him, and he repents quickly because he calls Abraham in, and he says, why are you doing this to me? Why did you lie to me? Why did you tell me all of this? I could have taken her fully as my wife. Do you not realize what you're doing? And then he tells his servants to command Abraham to get out of there. And notice this. It says, Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him to the south. So now he makes that long journey all the way back from Egypt to the land of Canaan. And here's the things that we know. One, it doesn't tell us that the famine is over. It doesn't want us to picture that, that it was okay for him to have left the land of Canaan because of the famine. It doesn't even tell us that it's over. It just tells us, oh yeah, by the way, he went back to the land of Canaan. 
It also never tells us that, that God came and told Abraham anything in all of this experience. Every other part of Abraham's journey up to this point, God's stepping in, God's showing up, Abraham's building altars to worship God. But in this whole narrative, God shows up to Pharaoh, but not to Abraham. And Abraham returns. He goes back to the place where Yahweh had last appeared to him. In verse 2, it says, Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. God turned this nasty situation, this tragic situation. He turned it around so that Abraham is more wealthy than ever as he comes out of Egypt and he comes back to the land of Canaan. And God can turn the mistakes and foibles of our lives around for eternal, infinite good. That is the goodness and grace of God alone. Verse 3, And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai. Notice, he's running back to the last place that he had built an altar. And it continues to say that, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there, Abram called on the name of Yahweh. Abraham runs back to the last place where God appeared to him. He runs back to that altar to worship the God of heaven. He's finally running back into the sheltering arms of God. In Revelation chapter 2, it says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. This morning, I want to ask you, how is it with your walk with Jesus? Are you as passionate about Jesus today as you were the day after your baptism? The day of your baptism? Are you as passionate about Jesus and walking with Him, serving Him, being involved in His work as you were at the start. The Bible tells us that He has something against us when we turn away from our first love. But look at what it goes on to say. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember where you started off. Remember those altars that you built. Remember that passion that you once had. Remember how you used to have joy to worship me, to serve me. Remember all of that. Repent, turn back like Abraham did, and do the first works. Go back to the altar, call in the name of the Lord. Go back to those practical experiences that you had to begin with. If it was studying Bible prophecy that got you to be as inspired as you are to follow Jesus, refresh that experience. If it was serving people that got you excited about it, go back to that. But whatever you do, go back to the altars, rebuild the altars Take that daily time with Jesus. Block out time in your life because that is how you return to your first love. To spend time building the relationship with a God of love. Abraham went out of Egypt and he went back to the altar so that that relationship could be renewed. So that he could rebuild that friendship. Abraham, through this experience, learned about God's grace to the extent that when that servant comes in the tent and he's there and he's frothing and thinking about this experience, he looks out and I believe he maybe saw the altar out there and he calls to Lot and he says, Lot, come on, we're brothers. Lot, your brother, he's your nephew. You have the authority over him. You have rank over him. Lot, we're brothers. Come over here. There shouldn't be dissension between us. We shouldn't be fighting. Lot, look around. You choose the place that you want to go. And I'll go the opposite direction. You have the choice of the land. Lot, 
You make the choice. Abraham has learned through this journey to trust in God as his provider. And that learning to trust in God as a provider has led him to be gracious to others as God was gracious to him. This is immediately what happens after Abraham comes back to that altar, this dissension between Lot. And, and through it, Abraham gives him this incredible gift of making the choice that he didn't deserve to make and treating him as his brother. Friends, let's return to our first love today. Let's fear to be outside of the sheltering arms of God. This past week, I've witnessed as, as my wife will be there and we're, we're there in, in our living room, let's say, or the kitchen and, and she'll, she'll say, I need to go, go do something upstairs. And she'll walk out of the room and immediately both girls' heads will turn towards where mommy is going. And as she walks out of the room, Livy's usually the first one who will just start to cry because she knows that mom is who she needs most of all. Mom is the one who can provide for her like even dad can't do. And she's scared to be out of the sheltering arms of her mom. Friends, we're called. The everlasting good news is to fear God. Not to be afraid of Him, but to be afraid not to be with Him. <laughs> to be afraid of not rebuilding that altar, to be afraid of distrusting Him, to be afraid of unbelief. This morning, if it's your desire to return to your first love, to block out time for Jesus, to say, Jesus, I want to make sure that I am pursuing this relationship with You, a relationship of trust and the God who loves me more than my own existence. I just want to invite you to stand with me as I pray. You're just saying, hey, I don't know the way back necessarily, but I want to return to my first love. Or even if you haven't experienced that, just saying, God, I want that love in my life. I want to experience a passionate relationship with you. Father in heaven, we stand before you not because we make promises that we're able to keep, but because you are a faithful, covenant-keeping God that's revealed throughout Scripture as the one who steps into our mess and rescues us out of it. And God, I'm becoming more and more terrified. More and more terrified of being outside of your arms. And God, I pray that that would be each of our experience, that we would truly fear you that we would reverence you, that we would have awe of you and your sheltering love in our lives to such an extent that we would be fearful of ever stepping outside of your promises. Oh God, may we rely upon you as the faithful, covenant-keeping God who loves us so much that you count the hairs of our head each morning, you watch out for the details of our life. Oh God, may that fear of a loving God, drive every other fear out of our lives, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.